What is up, beautiful people? Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking about Enneagram Type 1, starting a brand new series. We're going to go through each of the types and talk about the blind spots for each type. So, uh, the blind spots. This information is coming from Beatrice Chestnut. Excellent book. Excellent writer. Excellent mind. Um, I love her stuff. So, uh, we're going to be uh, investigating the Type 1 and going a little bit deeper, looking at the, uh, the things that the one might not realize about themselves. Uh, they can they can keep them from being as effective and as connected as they might want to be. All right, so uh, welcome to my channel. My name is Dr. Tom LaHue, and in the description below is a link to my website. Um, there's a lot of information there and uh, courses available, and um, I do coaching appointments for people that are wanting to know more about their Enneagram type, wanting to understand their subtypes, uh, or how they can get on a path to uh, you know being more healthy and more balanced. Um, even do some relationship coaching. So from an Enneagram and Christian perspective. So uh, if that interests you, the information's right there in the website below, TomLahue.com. Also, thank you to my patrons. I really appreciate your continued support. So let's jump into this list uh, provided to us by uh, by, by uh, Beatrice Chestnut, and let's uh, let's let's see if it can help us out in any way. Any of you guys live with Type Ones, or you spend time with uh, someone who is a Type One? One of my brothers is a one wing nine, um, and I certainly have a lot of ones around me in my life. Uh, so I have a lot of access to uh, to type ones. So let's let's get in the list. Um, the blind spots. Blind spots are those parts of your life that you may not even be aware of. And if you're new to the Enneagram and you're just now figuring out you're a type one, you got blind spots. Okay, so we're going to show you what those blind spots are, and um, so that they, as you become aware of them. You know, maybe they won't be so uh, uh, so problematic in your life. Maybe you'll be able to negotiate them a little bit better, navigate around them a little bit better. You become aware of them, then maybe you can start to minimize their destructiveness of those blind spots because you may wonder, why are these people against me when I only mean good for them? Why are these people hurt and upset with me when I'm only trying to help them? Okay, it might be your blind spots. Okay, so let's look at the blind spots of the type one. Number one is... The presence of anger. Um, that may not be something that you think about very often as a one. Yeah, you know there's times when you get angry. There's times when you get upset. I'm sure that you realize that about yourself. But you may not realize just how much other people perceive that anger in you. You may not realize, you know, how you're coming across. Um, you, you, you're, People are likely to surround you and say, are you okay? Are you upset? Are you angry? And that's when you grit your clench your teeth together like i'm not angry why do people keep asking me if i'm angry ones tend to have that frustrated angry countenance to themselves and often you know may not even be aware of it may not even be aware that they're projecting that ones are idealists meaning the world could be a better place they have that beginning assumption that things could be better things should be more perfect things should be more ordered. Things should be more structured. People should be more responsible. People should follow the rules. When you have that idealistic sevens, ones, and fours are idealists, guess what? As soon as you start out of the gate as an idealist, then you need to be prepared for disappointment. And disappointment is a form of sadness, a form of anger, frustration, frustration that people don't live up to those expectations, that Things aren't as good as they should be, aren't as organized and or aren't as well done as they ought to be. And when you when you when you think to yourself that this should be better, and it's not, 
or you had better, you had expectations that this was going to be different or going to be better than it is, then that's going to result in a certain level of anger. Now, ones are funny in that, you know, they can be quite angry and frustrated. They can appear that way, but then they don't, they don't want to be angry because being angry is, is a bad thing. Being angry is not good. Being angry is not, not what you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to be angry. So think how dumb this is, right? We get angry at ourselves for being angry. That just makes no sense, does it? So you could waste a lot of time being angry at yourself for being angry. I think probably better is just to recognize that you're angry. Instead of lying to yourself and saying, I'm not angry. Just accept it and say, okay, I am angry. That's what that is, that anger. Anger anger comes when we become incongruent. When, when we think things are supposed to be like this, when we think things are supposed to be like this, and then they shift, and they're not the way they ought to be, it's going to bring about a certain level of anger. Recogn and anger isn't always bad. Anger is energy. Anger gets things done. Um, gets things done. And so anger isn't necessarily something you should be ashamed of. There's totally appropriate times when you should get angry. When you see somebody mistreating somebody else, somebody being taken advantage of, when you see somebody acting a fool, it's appropriate to get angry. Maybe you should, maybe we should all get a little more angry at times. Maybe we shouldn't tolerate so many things that we tend to tolerate. Maybe we should be a little more intolerant. When you see somebody yelling at their wife or being abusive, nobody should tolerate that. So maybe it's okay to be angry sometimes. Maybe it's not a bad thing to be angry sometimes. But I think the one, you know, they can tend to have more of a frustrated annoyance kind of anger. Just people didn't put things back the way they were supposed to. People didn't check this out when they were supposed to. People didn't get their thing back on time when they were supposed to. It can be that kind of frustration that why won't people do the right thing? Because not everybody's a one. Not everybody is designed. First of all, define for me the right thing. Now, I believe in right and wrong. I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible. So I believe that God prescribes for us right and wrong. But there's a whole lot of things that aren't right and wrong issues. They are what you call preference, okay? Preference. There's a whole lot of things that are preference. And they aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily fit into the category of right and wrong. And I think ones can sometimes forget, they, they maybe should ask themselves, is what I'm upset right now about an issue of right and wrong? Or is it an issue of preference? You know, like think about like, whether you wind the cord around the vacuum when you're done or whether you kind of wind the cord up around your arm and set it on the vacuum. Is that right and wrong or is that preference? All right. So when you think about putting dishes in a dishwasher, you know, and you, you put them all in, you know, one way or put them in another way, is that an issue of right and wrong or is that an issue of preference? I think sometimes the one can, can confuse these things and, and feel like their preferences are issues of right and wrong. And you would save yourself a whole lot of trouble if you could just recognize, wait a minute, this is just an issue of preference. This isn't an issue of right and wrong, okay? This isn't necessarily somebody sinning against me. This is just, I like it done like this, and they don't care. They may not care because maybe they're not ones. Maybe they're not wired to think in terms of things being right and wrong and everything has to be cleaned up and put away and organized and straightened. Other people have other um, um, compulsions in their life besides 
keeping everything neat, organized, and clean. All right? So maybe we could channel that anger in more productive ways. Okay, number two, overdoing criticism and the impact it has on others. When a one is criticizing you, um, realize, you know, that they're trying probably to be helpful. They're trying, you know, to instruct you and inform you of a better way. So in their mind, they're thinking, I'm helping you by letting you know what the best way to do this is. This person should be appreciating me that I'm taking the time to show them the better way. However, that doesn't always come across that way. You know, most people don't want to be criticized. They don't want their um, failures pointed out. Number one of which is the one themselves. Ones don't want to be criticized. Um, they're so critical of themselves that when other people criticize them, it can often feel like, quote unquote, piling on. Uh, because they tend to pile on themselves already. And when you add criticism to what the one's already telling themselves, it can be too much. But the very person that hates to be criticized is often the one that's doing the criticizing. Ones can come across in a preachy tone if you're not careful. You can come across like you're prescribing for everybody. Um, and then when people don't live up to your demands or your right way of doing things, then, you know, the angry outburst can follow or the passive aggressive anger can come, can, can be seen. But then also you can be kind of disrespectful to people, um, you know, uh, with your criticisms, like, see, you're a lazy person. Now, is the person a lazy person? I mean, you kind of want to ask yourself what gives you the right to call somebody else lazy? Why not keep it about the behavior and say, look, you were told to clean your room. You didn't clean your room, and so here's the consequence. I don't have to call you a lazy person. Um, I don't have to call you an uncaring person. I could say, you know, when you um, when you said those things to me earlier, uh, that made me feel like you don't care about the situation. That's different than if I say, see, you don't care. You're a lazy person. You won't realize that calling people names and criticizing them and disrespecting them may often keep people from actually moving toward the goal you want. What do you want as a goal? Your goal is I want people to be responsible. I want people to, um, to do what they're supposed to do. And I want this home to be a place where people, I want this home or this office or this company I'm working for to be a place where people are getting their tasks done. But when you start turning against people with all of your criticism, you're, you're liable to deflate them to such a point that they may just completely, you know, lose, they may rebel. They may completely lose interest in pleasing you at all. They may say, you're impossible to please, so what's the point? So I'm not even going to try anymore. So we want to make sure we keep those connections and those criticism aren't so harsh that, that we, we sever the connections with the people that that we love and the people that we're trying to help, people that we're trying to, to, to take care of. So your criticisms, you know, realize this too, that your criticisms can sometimes be facial criticisms. They don't have to be words. So yeah, you were good in that you didn't say anything. You didn't say any of the wrong words. But you know, if every time I look at you, you're looking at me with this look of disgust or, or this look of, of anger. If every time I look at you, you know, if every time I, I catch your eye, I'm doing anything and I turn and look at you and I get this face of disgust, this face of anger, this face of frustration, maybe I'll just quit looking at you. Maybe I'll just quit connecting with you. 
And that's not what you want. You don't want people to quit connecting with you. You don't want people to disconnect from you. So we need to, you need to be cautious about this blind spot of being overly critical. Uh, I know you're trying to help, but you may help people right out the door. Okay. So the next one, number three, the downside of self criticism. Ones often believe they need to be tough on themselves to make sure that they behave in such a good way, in such a responsible way, um, that they don't make any mistakes and they don't have any reason to feel any blame. Um, so you work really hard at keeping yourself in line. And that's good. I mean, that's why you end up the manager. That's why you end up, you know, with responsibility because you will be responsible because you keep yourself in line. But at times you might actively be undermining your own sense of your own sense of goodness. Um, you know, you are a good person in the sense that you're getting all those things done, but you probably don't feel like one. You probably don't feel like you measure up. You probably feel like you really fall flat. Although everybody around you would say, oh yeah, I know Johnny or, or Sandy, man, that's a good guy. That's a good lady, man. She but you might not believe that about yourself. You may be undermining your own sense of your own self-worth with your constant barrage of self-criticism. So what, what can we say? Lighten up on yourself. You know, just lighten up on yourself. Realize that nobody gets it perfect all the time. And no area of your life, no, nobody could have absolutely perfect areas of their life. They may have one area or two areas that they really got, you know, a lot of attention and focus on. But nobody can cover every base in their life. Everybody's going to have um, parts of their life or parts of their home or parts of their relationships where there's going to be some, you know, accumulation of some rubbish, some accumulation of some dust. You know, it's not that you've got it perfect why people uh, love you. It's that you admit that you don't. That's what makes you warm. That's what makes you relatable. Yeah, people want you to work for them because you're responsible and people trust you because you're responsible, but it's not your responsibility and not your goodness that makes you relatable. It's the fact that you're willing to say of yourself, man, I really blew that one. Man, I really screwed that up. I don't ever get everything exactly right. If you can allow yourself to 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 say that out loud, just allow yourself to accept that truth that not every area of my life is going to live up to that ideal standard. There's going to be times and there's going to be areas of my life where I just blow it. Listen, if you if you have a if you're trying to mentor another young dad, for example, uh, instructing him on the right way to do everything is going to eventually alienate him away from you. But when you can own your own failures and say to that young dad, you know, I have not always done it the right way, buddy. I can tell you so many times I messed up. So many times I said the things I wish I wouldn't say. I came down on my kids sometimes and was sometimes just a, a harsh old ugly bugger. And you know, man, there's times when I, I said the wrong thing and I did the wrong. That's what's going to draw people to you. And then maybe after you draw them, draw them to you, now you can have the opportunity to share what you've learned the hard way. But if you believe you have to project this image of always doing the right thing and always being responsible, eventually people are going to probably move away from that. And it's going to make people want to disconnect from you because, well, I can't live up to that standard. And so maybe relax a little bit, be easier on yourself and recognize that it's not, it's not your perfection that draws people to you. It's, it's your willingness to admit imperfections and your failures and your growth and people seeing you grow and develop 
that makes you relatable and makes people want to be around you. And if they want to be around you, then maybe now you can you can um, instruct them in what you've learned. Okay, number four, the repression of feelings and impulses. People, uh, ones often claim that they don't experience a lot of emotion. It's not practical, you know? I mean, I can see the one kind of tapping their feet when somebody's, I really felt like you weren't listening to me and I really felt like I wasn't valued and I really felt like maybe I was not. I can see the one tapping their foot, like wanting to get to the end of this discussion as soon as possible. And why don't you... Why don't you just, Sam, why don't you just get done with this conversation and get back to work? Is this really what you need to be doing right now? We're wasting a lot of time here talking about your feelings when, you know, those boxes aren't going to fill themselves. So why don't we, uh, why don't we get active? Um, and I can see one's kind of rushing to, well, tell me what you want me to do, you know, and not wanting to sit with somebody when they're, when they're having an emotional conversation or an emotional discussion about what they felt and their feelings. I could see the one thinking, let's get to what we want to do here. You know, we're wasting a lot of time. We're not being productive. But why is it not productive to examine your feelings? Why is it not productive to, you know, feelings are a big part of who you are and a big part of what makes you who you are. Um, just ask the fours, right? And ones go to four and stress is when they finally get in touch with their feelings and uh, when they finally slam down on those feelings um, of uh, that they've been repressing for so long. So they tend to be practical, pragmatic, and sensible. And in other words, they might feel overwhelmed. They might feel left out. They might feel afraid. But at the end of the day, the one's just going to think, I need to just shake all this off. I need to just shake all this off. I need to get my to-do list out and I need to just get back on task. I need to, and there's not enough time for all these feelings and all these emotions. I need to just, you know, get back on task and that's the way to get out of this. But maybe it's not. Maybe maybe you really do need to sit there in that chair and just let yourself listen to somebody else talk about how they felt or even share with somebody else you know how you're feeling and what's going on inside of you. Well, that's not the most sensible use of your time. Really? Um, because remember you can end up like a volcano, right? So maybe letting off a little bit of the steam might be a good thing for you. Maybe you'd be more productive if you got in touch with your feelings. Maybe you'd be more productive. Maybe you'd be more responsible, a more responsible leader if, if you weren't, uh, so quick to rush through emotional stuff. Maybe your employees would, would perform better if you were sensitive to their feelings. Hmm? Maybe you would be a better boss or a better manager or a better employee if you were careful with people's feelings and careful to express your own in a productive way. So ones can tend to stifle their feelings um, and Let's see, stifle their naturally occurring emotions and impulses and it may prevent them from drawing important information from what they feel and want. Okay, two more. Uh, what's number next? Number five. Number five is rigidity. Oh, that stings, doesn't it? Rigidity, the one right way of doing things, thinking. Ones may not notice that other people perceive their insistence on adhering to the right ways of doing things as being rigid. Um, in other words, you know, no shades of gray. And a lot of this, a lot of this world, you know, 
there are a lot some things are right and wrong they're they're black and white but a lot of things are are gray um you know that idea of like just go to that simple old ex idea you know like stealing's wrong of course period stealing's wrong it's always wrong to steal however what if you have no bread and you have kids at home that are starving to death i know that's an extreme example but it's one of those shades of gray examples or what if uh okay obeying your government leaders is right that's the right thing to do what if your government leaders are telling you to do something that is wrong? What if they're telling you, ordering you, mandating that you do something that you know and you believe um, is, to, is wrong? What do you do then? So there are these shades of gray where we have to try to figure out for ourselves, informed, yes, of course, but figure out for ourselves what's the correct way of doing things. And sometimes ones, you know, can lose that sense of grayness and can be very rigid in their thinking and not very fluid. Think the opposite would be fluid in their thinking. It's important for ones to remember that people have different um, points of view. So one leans on the nine, right? And realizes people have different points of view. And when it comes to like procedures and rules, um, not everybody agrees on those procedures. Sometimes people don't agree. Sometimes people vehemently oppose what the rule book says or what the guidelines say. And, and it may be that those people aren't bad. It may be those people really want the company to be more productive than it is. And they're saying these rules, these, these uh, guidelines are slowing down our progress and we need to circumvent them and we don't have time to get some committee together to approve it before we start taking action. And the one might tend to think, some ones think like that, they really do, but other ones might tend to think, well, we, we're not authorized to do that. So, um, and if you wanna break the rules, you're bad. But they may not be bad, they may be very good and they may, they may just see the rules or interpret them or interpret their value differently than you are. And that's going to be hard for you. You're going to choke on that, probably. You're going to choke on that because there's one right way to do things. That's very rigid. Um, okay. So one question you might ask yourself as a one is, is it more important to me to be right or to be happy? Now, that is a loaded question, and I'm not even going to try to answer it, but it's something for you to, to wrestle with and think about because you can be right and be wrong. So think about, like, I think about, I've got five kids. Think about the dad who, you know, let's say their, their daughter comes home pregnant, okay? Finds out they're pregnant. Well, maybe this dad is a one or this mom is a one and, you know, this is not right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This isn't, this is all I told you. This is the, what was going to happen. I told you. And, and then they go on this war path of, you know, well, you're not living here. If you're not going to live by my rules and you're not living here and you're not getting anything from me and you're not, ones could easily go down that path because this person has violated your trust. This person has done the wrong thing and now they've been caught and you had told them what was going to happen, but they didn't listen to you and you were right and they are wrong. But here's the problem. Here's your little daughter, you know, who's gotten in over her head and is in trouble. And what does she need right now? Does she need a sermon? 
Is that what she needs? Is that what she's in most need of? Um, so one has a two wing too, don't they? That sometimes you just need to be helpful. You need to be compassionate. You need to be caring. That sometimes you can be right, but be wrong. I mean, what's more important? That, that your daughter knows how bad she is and knows the wrong thing she did or, or that, or that your connection with her stays intact? Is it really the most useful thing to do right now to preach her a sermon um, about what she's done wrong? It would be more productive, wouldn't it, to, to just be compassionate and gracious? And maybe you'll get your, 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 your sermon one day. Maybe you'll get to preach your sermon one day. But chances are right now, your little daughter probably just needs a hug. She just probably needs her dad or her mom to hug her and say, look, honey, I know that this is not what you intended and your mom and dad, we love you very much. And this is going to be hard, you know, but we're in this together with you. And, you know, we've made our share of mistakes and, uh, you know, we love you and we want you to know we're going to be right here next to you. And we're going to help this little baby have as normal a life as possible. Man, can you just feel the grace? You know, the Bible says that Jesus came with grace and truth to speak to speak, uh, you know, the truth in love. There needs to be that balance of grace and truth. And right now would be a time of maybe not the hammer of truth. Um, maybe you'll get that conversation in the future, but you probably won't get it if you just lead with that. You may just shut that little girl out of your life forever. So this is one of those moments where do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? Do I want to be right or do I want to stay connected to the people in my life that, that, that mean the most to me. Well, they did wrong and they should know it. I think she knows it. Okay. <laughs> she's, <laughs> I think she knows it. Believe me when she's on that delivery table and the pain of childbirth, you know, okay. She knows it. Right. So, uh, maybe she doesn't need dad to, to yell at her. All right. So, uh, and what happens when you're wrong? You know, you're going to be wrong. At times, what happens then? Um, you want people to be compassionate with you, don't you? You want people to know you were trying your best and you you meant well. So we need to extend that same courtesy to others um, as well. Okay, last one, number six. The need for vacation, pleasure, rest, and fun. Hello, ones goes to seven, right? One leans on nine. So this is when one looks really healthy is they, they, they kind of put their to-do list down Maybe they've planned out their vacation, they planned out their trip, and now they can just relax. Now they can just, um, you know, uh, enjoy the people they're with. They can let some of that stress go, and they can just experience some of that freedom of the seven. They can just experience some of that freedom and some of that leisure and some of that rest um, and uh, relax from that sense of responsibility. And here's the thing. Well, I ain't got time for that. You know, I got all this. I got this to-do list here. I got all these things that need to be done and these ain't going to get done themselves. Maybe, maybe you'd be more productive and maybe your work would be better and maybe you would be a more effective leader if you were rested. Hello? Maybe you would be a more effective, more productive, more useful get more accomplished in the long run if you could take some breaks, um, if, you, if you could be a little more balanced. Wouldn't that be good? Maybe you would be more responsible to yourself and more responsible about your own health if you could know when to shut it down. 
Know when to take a break. Know when to just take a day off. You know, a little nonsense now and then is relished by the wisest men. So listen to the seven, okay? Listen to the seven. That every one of us needs at time to just have fun. To just go out and experience some joy. And, and spend money that we don't have. And be irresponsible. Every one of us at times needs to just go to the carnival and have a good day. And if you want to be a good mom or a good dad or a good grandpa, then you need to have some fun. And you need to you need to instruct the people in your life to have some fun and lead them into some joy and lead them into some fun. And you're capable of doing this. You're a one. I know, but you are capable of going to seven. And you are capable of relaxing and having a good time. All right. So, um... I hope that helps you guys. Uh, the blind spots of type one. I hope that this is encouraging to you. And um, we'll pick up next time with uh, the blind spots of type two. All right. I'll see you guys. Have a great week.